The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please see the episode notes for more information about support services. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of American Scandal, and this is The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. Over the last six episodes, we've been searching for an answer to the question, who was Jeffrey Epstein? We know he was a college dropout who became a prep school teacher, a prep school teacher who became a Wall Street hustler, and a Wall Street hustler who became a confidant of billionaires. We know he used his wealth to prey on vulnerable women and girls, and he exercised his influence to bend the justice system to his will. We know he employed a network of enablers to maintain a global sex trafficking operation for years. And we know that he had powerful friends, politicians, and tech titans among them who may have looked the other way while Epstein perpetrated hideous crimes. And yet, mysteries remain. Here to talk about a few of them are Jim Clemente and Laura Richards from the podcast Real Crime Profile. They've produced a companion series to our show called Forensically Deconstructing Jeffrey Epstein. You can find it by following the link in our show notes, and I highly recommend that you do, as their analysis of Epstein's behavior is perceptive, meticulous, and always fascinating. Jim and Laura's insights stem in large part from their considerable professional expertise. Jim was an FBI special agent and profiler for more than 20 years, and before that, he was a New York City prosecutor. Laura spent a decade at New Scotland Yard, where she ran the Violent Crime Intelligence and Analysis Unit. Here's our conversation. Laura and Jim, thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to talk with you, Lindsay. Now, Laura, you ran New Scotland Yard's sexual offenses section, and surely you've seen some heinous sex crime cases in your career. Is there anything about this case, the Jeffrey Epstein case, that surprised you? Well, I've certainly seen a lot of different types of cases, but I really feel that this case, because of the fact he understood vulnerability so well, it was his level of exploitation and being able to target so many people for so long. And I think it's really, you know, one of the first times we see in a case that uh, as we deep dive and, and deconstruct it, you see so many enablers, so many people who defended him, enabled him and allowed him to get away with it. And I do think that aspect of what I'm calling male entitlement and male privilege and the fact that he understood rich people so well and could exploit them, you know, it is a case that just keeps on giving. And I certainly think his hubris, his uh, way of understanding vulnerability and getting leverage and insurance from other people to allow him to continue for so long is really what is just so insidious and disgusting and reprehensible in this case. Jim, did anything surprise you about this case? Yeah, as a former prosecutor and FBI agent and profiler, I've been in law enforcement for over 30 years, and I have never in my career ever seen a deal like what Jeffrey Epson got in Florida. He literally was able to manipulate the system in such a way that he barely even went to jail, and he made it look on the outside like he had stolen a bagel. And the fact is that the extent of his crimes were so deep and horrific 
that he should have been in jail for the rest of his life. Because he made this deal, he was able to, even during his jail time, and I'm using air quotes around that, he was able to continue to sexually victimize girls and continue his incredible lifestyle, even though he was supposed to be in prison. It's just, I, I just, it's confounding and really maddening that he was able to do that because he was wealthy, connected, and powerful. We'll get to the deal you talk about a little later, but right now let's discuss the magnitude of his sex trafficking operation. How extensive was it? Oh, incredibly extensive. He just had so many people in his web, so many people in different pools that he could fish in from modeling to the arts, to those who are in the creative world, to those who are in the elite world, to those who were just incredibly vulnerable. And that part is just absolutely chilling. Um, The fact that so many people did turn a blind eye to it, that's the bit that I find really difficult, that people did not stand up when they saw him targeting and exploiting young girls in, in this pyramid. And I also think when we have to consider law enforcement and their role, um, we did just cover an episode on Sheriff Rick Bradshaw. And I have to say, it is confounding how he is still in post, having allowed him to come and go from the county jail and he's still in a position of power now. And even you know, within the past couple of months, he opened an inquiry into the handling of the Epstein case. So he is now officially investigating himself. And I just cannot understand how that can be allowed to happen. Yeah, I would add to that that because Epstein had multiple residences and, and most of them mansions in New York City, in Ohio, He buys an island and he names it Little St. Jeff's. Um, He creates his own country with his own rules. And basically, he is able to have massive sex parties, invite all sorts of wealthy people, which again gives him the imprimatur of being very powerful. He gets, even after he's been in prison, he gets these people to come to his places and have major parties. And he's depicted with these people in pictures. He hangs them on the wall to show his victims how connected and powerful he is and how worthless they are in comparison. So right away, as soon as somebody walks into his bedroom or his hallway, they see that he is with presidents, the Pope, very famous people. He has power just as much as he has the ability to get access to them. And so this sex trafficking operation that he set up is not only in a neighborhood or in a country, but it's actually worldwide. He has the ability to travel anywhere in the world on a plane that's dubbed the Lolita Express, actually playing on the fact that he is sexually victimizing young girls, actually proud of that fact, bragging about that fact. And everybody knows that he is, quote, in liking them young. I think that's how Trump categorized it, right? He likes them young. Yeah, I mean, that kind of language, you know, underage girls or underage women, and it's the language. 
Yeah, that really does mask what he was doing. And I think so many people are guilty of that, of dressing up the behavior as something else. And we can't forget, he really was a savant at understanding rich people. I mean, when you're paying for the refurb at, at the White House for President Clinton, when you're buying dinners at or places at dinners like the TED Talk or to sit at Clinton's table at $100,000 ago, he found a way to wheedle his way in. And he also found a way through Ghislaine Maxwell to be able to get into the echelons, the highest echelons and the elites and rub shoulders with them. And that again sent a message to people of his power. And people did want to be around him, even though a lot of his staff talked about the fear they felt being around him. He was the Jekyll and Hyde character, but with his magnetic charm, he also knew how to use his personal power. One other thing I'd add is that any offender chooses victims who are available, vulnerable, and desirable. Well, Epstein's category of desirability is very clear. He liked young girls and he liked them without tattoos and he liked them without body piercings. He wanted them to be pure. And so his access and and their vulnerability were the only two things that he had to overcome. And he got the access because of his wealth and because he could offer them money and because he could bring in people like Jelaine Maxwell to to be a recruiter for him and other girls that wanted the money, wanted the association with him and the power that they thought it gave them. And also because they were intimidated by him and they were controlled by him. So he had multiple different ways of getting access to girls. And they were, of course, vulnerable because they were young and inexperienced. And they were literally just thrown into a situation with him, isolated from their friends and taken advantage of after they've been already groomed by the location itself, by the pictures hanging on the walls, by the nudes that generalized that kind of behavior and made them think that it was okay. So all of these things show his mastery in getting access to vulnerable victims that he desired. You described some very deliberate actions on Epstein's part to uh, stage his environment so that his power is projected clearly, not just to his victims, but to his peers. Um, this sort of deliberate activity for me is difficult because it's so, um, well, it's so deliberate. It, it's something that you, you must take action to do. A murderer doesn't usually put paintings of the implements of murder on their walls to impress upon his victims that I am a murderer. Mm. So as criminal profilers, can you give me some insight into the mind of anyone like Jeffrey Epstein? Can you deconstruct his psychology? What is the motivation of this horrendous behavior and and how he so glibly uh, justifies it? It's so funny that you hit on that word glibly because that's the first characteristic in Dr. Hare's psychopathy checklist. Um, the major component of his psychology is psychopathy. Laura and I went through the psychopathy checklist on our podcast when we were covering the mysterious Mr. Epstein. And the first thing that we looked at was glibness and superficial charm. This is a characteristic that's a, that allows psychopaths to worm their way into situations and environments that will actually help them accomplish their goals. And if you look down the entire list of 20 points in the psychopathy checklist, almost every single one is something that is 
very obvious in Epstein's life. But the reason why he would do these things, put pictures on the walls of of his connections and his power as right next to pictures of girls in in compromising positions or completely nude exposing themselves is because he wanted to make the behavior seem normalized. Normalizing the behavior lowers the inhibitions of the intended victims, and it also gives him an opportunity to have people come by, legitimate people, maybe powerful people, and see that and not call him to task on it. And so they're tacitly approving of his disgusting behavior. And that's really important for offenders. They want to find acceptance in life. They know they're, they're pariahs. They know what they're doing is absolutely wrong. That's why they hide the actual behavior so well. But they want to feel accepted about it. Right, Laura? Well, it's kind of, yeah, the hiding in plain sight and the fact that young girls are brought in and that's the first thing that they see through uh, walking through his house before they even get to him. That is part of his grooming. And many perpetrators do do that up front. And particularly if you have celebrity status. So, you know, when you think about R. Kelly or you think about Harvey Weinstein, some of that grooming happens before meeting. And so they're already disempowering and disabling the victims just in their very being. And they know how to use that to maximum effect. So seeing intermittently pictures of young girls who are naked and unclothed, as Jim says, that does normalize it. But in amongst meeting President Clinton and pictures of him with the Pope, that sends a very powerful message to them as well that he is all powerful. And that hiding in plain sight, the normalizing aspect, well, that's exactly what R. Kelly would do of sing songs like Age is Just a Number when he was grooming uh, Alia, who he went on to marry. He met her at 12 and married her at 15, and Age is Just a Number and all the way that he behaved on stage graphically um, in terms of his act was basically normalizing the behavior. So we do see it in cases. And his psychology, well, he did come from very humble, a very humble background. Of his, his parents were a gardener and a teacher, and he obviously set his sights on being far more on that than that. And he talked his way into Dalton. So from very early on, you see that he is a master manipulator. He's able, without any qualifications, to get a position in Dalton to so that he can access young girls. And perpetrators try things out. They do in vivo tryouts and they work out what works for them in terms of gaining power and control in the quickest time possible. And one thing about Epstein that is evidently clear from the deep dive that I've been doing into him and his lifestyle is that he craved power and control. He had to be the person in charge. And the whole aspect of having stables full of girls, which is what he uh, it was more Ghislaine briefed the housekeepers to ensure that there were girls on tap. You know, having th at least three of them massage him each day also talks to his insatiable appetite for power and control and the fact that he went, he wanted massages first. Well, I think that also talks to the fact, and I talked about it on Real Crime Profile, I call it SPS, his small penis syndrome, that he would start with massaging. But it was all about psychologically deconstructing the victims. That's really where he managed to uh, feel more powerful. And I think it is just so insidious and horrific that 
He would explain it by saying that when he was caught out the first time, by saying, well, he found, finds massages spiritual and therapeutic. Well, the irony was these were young girls, 13, 14, 15, 16, without any massage training whatsoever. And therefore, it's just asinine that that's what he said that went unchallenged. But he also got other people to parrot that back from his lawyers to all those in his circle to think that that is normal. And that's the part where he has the ability to create this ecosystem that allows him to thrive and maintain power and control, and his wealth certainly was a key aspect to that. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is sponsored by Best Fiends. So you've got your phone in your hand and a few moments to yourself. You know what will happen as soon as you unlock the screen. Politics, epidemics, nonsense from all directions. Don't go down that path. These are your moments. Use them wisely. Best Fiends is a casual but stimulating problem-solving game that has you using your wits to save the cute bugs of Minutia from an invasion of greedy slugs. Minutia is a fun, colorful place full of cute characters that I need to collect to use strategically in solving challenging puzzles anytime I need a break. Plus, there are new theme challenges waiting for me every few weeks. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hi, Wondery listeners. If you've ever wanted to listen to the best episodes of your favorite Wondery podcasts all in one place, well, now you can. Introducing The Best of Wondery. The Best of Wondery is a new podcast that features standalone, full-length episodes of some of the most captivating, compelling, and exciting stories from all of Wondery's originals, including Dr. Death, Business Horse, Life is Short with Justin Long, American History Tellers, The Shrink Next Door, and many more. To hear your favorite shows all in one place, search for The Best of Wondery on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. Well, let's talk about the first time he was caught. Alexander Acosta, when he was U.S. attorney, signed off on an incredibly lenient plea agreement for Epstein. Uh, prosecutors in Acosta's office worked closely with Epstein's legal team to hammer out that deal. You're a former prosecutor, Jim. Is any of that typical? No, it's absolutely atypical. In fact, the only time that prosecutors typically engage in, in entering an agreement that reduces someone's sentence is if that person cooperates with law enforcement. And that means naming all their co-conspirators and agreeing to testify against them. And the cooperation and the extent of the leniency comes from the extent of the cooperation. I've never before heard of a, any kind of prosecution agreement that says not only do you not have to name the other people, but you do not have to give evidence against them. You do not have to help us in an investigation in, against them. And in fact, we will make them immune from prosecution. I have never, ever before heard that happening in a court of law in the United States of America. It is absolutely the opposite of what should happen. And this makes me believe that there was an intervention at a much higher level for a much higher purpose. And I don't know the nature of that. And Lindsay, I could tell you, I'll, I'll talk to you about that if you want. 
and and we can go into that. I don't know if you want to go into that now or go into it later, but I have two theories about what it might be. We will get to those, certainly. Okay. Um, but first, Laura, do you think this leniency um, says anything at large about the Justice Department's handling of sexual assault cases in general? I think it does. I think the very fact that Steve Hoffenberg goes to prison for the Ponzi scheme to, for 10 years, you know, when financial crime is committed, there's a very serious sentence meted out. But when we talk about sexual assault, when we talk about stalking, when we talk about domestic violence, for some reason, the criminal justice system becomes a very bad parent and the wrong messages are sent out. And I also think, you know, it, it wasn't just about the non-prosecution agreement. It was the very fact that Alex Acosta had vowed to take on Epstein and had put together, there was a 53-page indictment that then gets reduced to a charge of sex with a sex worker and a 13-month uh, time in the county jail, which should have been 18 months, and the fact that Alex Acosta sealed that non-prosecution agreement as well, and the fact that they did not notify the victims, which they had a duty to do. And in fact, they went out of their way to move courts, and they said to the victims they were still investigating it. So it wasn't just a case of what happened, it's also about how it happened. And I think that still we do not see victims, particularly female victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, child sex trafficking, stalking. We do not see these cases being taken seriously. But this is, you know, this is really a case on steroids in, in many senses. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that, that the federal government typically slams the hammer down on sex offenses against children. So this case stands out as an aberration, because what we would normally do in a case when I was an investigator or a profiler on a case was if it was a local case and the state crime did not pack a big enough sentence, we could also charge them federally and put them away for a very long time. That's why I said Epstein should have been, under these circumstances, should have been put in prison for the rest of his life. Instead, he takes a vacation where he's out of jail every day, all day, where when he's in jail, a lot of times he spends that in a, in, a, in a luxury lawyer's room as opposed to in a prison cell. And then he gets to pay the salaries of the cops who are supposedly watching him. And many times they drop him off at his home unsupervised. And anybody could be there and he could be doing anything, including continuing to sexually victimize girls. So this is... I, again, I can't reiterate enough how much different this is than any other case I've ever seen over the last 40 years that I've been involved with law enforcement. Well, let's return to perhaps the reasons why it was different. There are a lot of rumors and conspiracy theories surrounding Epstein. You have mentioned that you have some ideas about where this leniency came from. Uh, I'll just let you tell me your two theories. Okay. Well, the first is that he provided evidence that was not put on the record. In other words, those kinds of deals are only done when there is actual cooperation. And I have to assume that since Acosta had a 50 plus page indictment prepared, that it was filled with good, solid, corroborated evidence from all the young girls and women that came forward. The only time I have ever seen someone get a sweetheart deal like this is when they are actually involved 
in something that has to do with national security. If there's a national security nexus, those laws override all the other laws in the United States. And for example, there have been mumblings about Jeffrey Epstein having connections to the Mossad. I would not put it past him to have manipulated himself into a situation where he offered to give evidence or information about a foreign power that he's able to connect with because of his money and wealth and ability to travel all over the world. I would not put it past him to have talked his way into a situation where the U.S. federal government believed that he was a national asset and therefore gave him a sweetheart deal in this case. I think it would, if that's actually what happened, it's horrendous, it's horrific, it is an abusive system, and I think it's one more check in the evidence box that Jeffrey Epstein will do whatever it takes in order to continue to offend, to, to continue to use his position of power and authority and money to offend against young girls. Now, what you're suggesting here, though, uh, and it corroborates, you know, a rumor surrounding Epstein that he's some sort of spy, an intelligence agent. It doesn't sound like you buy it. It sounds like you're indicating that he just talked his way into it. Is there anything to this rumor that he is a spy? Well, here's the thing. When we typically think of spies, you're talking about the people who actually work for our intelligence agency. But actually, agents that they go out and hire, people that they get information from, are similar to criminal informants. Like in the criminal world, in the FBI or the police departments, we develop informants who are involved in criminal activity and we get information from them and we sometimes pay them for the information or we sometimes give them a better deal if they cooperate in a case. The same thing is true, but with different labels in the intelligence world. What I'm saying is Epstein can say that he has access to these people. Epstein can purport to have really important information, but he may not have come through with anything, or he may have just been giving disinformation from those people. What I'm saying is not that he was a spy, but that he was a paid informant for intelligence agencies, and for that, he got protected. I, I also think it's you know important because it, it's not a stretch too far what Jim is saying because when we think about Lord Robert Maxwell, he also gave information and intelligence to intelligence services and there's that whole question mark about whether he fell off his boat or whether he was killed. His daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell, thought that he was murdered because of the secrets that he was sharing. Now, Epstein fully knew how to exploit people. He was in the business of getting leverage on people. And we saw clear examples where the, clearly there was leverage there with Vanity Fair and uh, Graydon Carter, for example, where a story was going to be run. And then suddenly following a meeting with Epstein, the story about his abuse is no longer within Vicky Ward's story. So he had tapes. He had digital tapes that were set up in every room. He brought in people like Prince Andrew, and there was a Channel 4 dispatches, the prince and the paedophile. And again, it, with the, those situations, it's in no one's interest for Epstein to testify about his little black book or the secrets that he knew. But I also just want to underline the, the fact that the patriarchy was well at work as well. 
And the patriarchy and male privilege and male entitlement, the, the fact that these women and girls were objectified and that everyone seemed to be okay with that. And I mean that in the sense that from pilot, the pilots to the drivers to the staff, people turned a blind eye and he brought in women, his secretaries and people like Ghislaine Maxwell to recruit further girls. And at no point was that being reported because he understood leverage and he paid people off and he did very well on that. He loved to live life on the edge. So the, the aspect of him being a psychopath, the fact that he loves to be in control, it would not surprise me if he was using the information and intelligence that he had on people as leverage to make what he was doing go away or to get further information and intelligence from other people. Now, Jim, you mentioned you had two theories about Acosta's lenient plea deal. What was the second? Yes. The other theory is that some named or unnamed person in that non-prosecution agreement was in a position to pull strings at main justice or higher and get his deal done and his sentence reduced. Because there was a lot of back and forth between the locals not being happy what the district attorney's office was doing and calling in the feds and the feds coming to rescue and the FBI doing an investigation and ending up in a 50 plus page indictment against Epstein. But all that seemed to disappear. And either, as Laura said, it was that they totally diminished these women who were victims of Epstein and they didn't care about what they had to say and they didn't believe them because they weren't, quote, perfect victims. Or somebody from above told them that they were no longer able to go after this guy. And that could be for a very nefarious reason. Like I said, somebody wanted to be protected. Somebody important was connected to him. Or, as I said earlier, he was seen as an asset to an intelligence agency and they stepped in and put the kibosh on this investigation. Oh, I certainly don't think it's just about the fact that the young girls were vulnerable and that they wouldn't make credible witnesses. I don't think it's about that at all on its own. It's not credible, but no. they may have made that determination. Well, I think when Alex Acosta and others said that they really wanted to go after him and, and the FBI and putting together that 53-page indictment, it's clear that they found evidence. And the fact that Jay Leftowitz then connected with Alex Acosta and we had uh, knowledge of these breakfast meetings that Julie Brown uncovered and that the breakfast meetings were happening outside of federal buildings in a hotel and that Leftowitz and Alex Acosta both worked together previously at a law firm and then suddenly the deal changes and it took some time to hammer out the non-prosecution agreement. Um, I know that Alex Acosta said that it had nothing to do with those meetings but I'm afraid on the timeline that doesn't make any sense at all. So it has to be that there is a bigger threat. It has to be that there are other people that would be named. And that's why I said it was in no one's interest for that little black book to emerge of that either Epstein had or Ghislaine Maxwell because of the names that were in it. And therefore, Epstein being able to do a deal in terms of him being arrested again um, and it being clear that the system was taking it seriously. And of course, now we've had the revelations from Dr. Michael Baden uh, about his views on what happened to Epstein and him saying that he believes that it was a homicide. 
I think you have to. It's not just about conspiracy theory, but you have to take those aspects very seriously. There is, you know, something rotten in the state of Denmark. That goes without saying in this case. Thinking about the bigger threat that might have pressed upon Acosta and the Justice Department to to enable this deal, that big threat is also the center of probably the most well-known conspiracy theory, and that's about Epstein's death. Uh, recently, a private pathologist hired by Epstein's brother said that a broken bone in Epstein's neck suggests homicide rather than suicide. Um, Jim, based on your experience and what you know about this case, is there anything to that claim? Well, Michael Bodden is a very experienced and very well-respected medical examiner. And he actually said that there were three bones broken in Epstein's neck. And typically, you see that in one third of the strangulation deaths that are autopsied. But you typically see it in the ones where there is manual strangulation versus ligature strangulation. It does happen sometimes in ligature strangulation, but it doesn't happen all the time. So it is an anomaly and it needs to be investigated. Baden also claims that there's a deep bruise in the center of Epstein's throat. Now, I didn't see whatever ligature purportedly he hung himself with, but it's rare for a ligature to make a deep bruise in that particular area without also making uh, significant bruising on the side. So that could be more consistent with somebody wrapping their hands around Epstein's neck and pushing in with the thumbs. So again, a real reason why this should be investigated. And when they investigate, they should do an equivocal death investigation. This is an investigation when you don't know what the manner of death is. You may know the cause of death, asphyxiation, but the manner of death, homicide, suicide, natural, accident, or undetermined, has to be determined through a deep investigation that includes a psychological autopsy of the victim, and all the forensic evidence and all the circumstantial evidence surrounding the death and the discovery of the body. I think that should be done. Just adding to that, the original report by the pathologist said that the cause of death was hanging, the manner suicide pending further study. And so it was not a conclusion outright that this was a suicide. And I don't know what happened with that pending further study. But I think when you add in other behavioral facets, and they are both the prison guards being asleep at the same time, which is highly unusual, the camera's not working, the fact that the cellmate was moved, the fact that Epstein said the previous cellmate had tried to kill him, the fact that he had spent the day with his lawyers before because he was playing, paying lawyers on rotation and they said that he was not of suicidal ideation or suicidal mind... And the fact that his brother Mark said that he's not the type to commit suicide and adding in the fact that Jim and I well know with psychopaths um, and psychopathy, it's very rare for them to be suicidal because they are so arrogant and narcissistic. And Epstein did think that he was still going to get bail. That's what he was saying to his lawyers. So I think when you add those aspects and those components, I have to say that it really does need to be properly reinvestigated. And Dr. Michael Baden, who was present at the time, has made that conclusion. And I think that is significant. Introducing Buyer's Market, a new podcast from NBC News. The power players of media and technology influence how we live, work, and interact. 
On Buyer's Market, Dylan Byers sits down one-on-one with leaders who are changing the game, like Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, ESPN's Jimmy Pitaro, and Uninterrupted's Maverick Carter. Each week, they talk about how their industries intersect with politics, how they use consumer data, and what they think the future of American culture holds. Search for Buyer's Market wherever you're listening now and subscribe. And stay tuned for a special preview at the end of this episode. Let's talk about one of Epstein's most pernicious enablers, Ghislaine Maxwell. She played allegedly an integral role in recruiting new women and girls from Epstein. Laura, how much did you know about Ghislaine Maxwell before you started working on, on this story for forensically deconstructing Jeffrey Epstein? Well, I mean, I knew a little bit because she was seen as a British socialite. So there was quite a lot of coverage of her in the British media prior to Epstein with her father and uh, Robert Maxwell's uh, untimely death. And then she went into hiding for a period of time. And I believe that's when she came to America and she met Epstein. So... I understood her to be a socialite. The fact that she would sort of go to the opening of anything, be it an envelope, to get her face seen and to be known uh, in those circles and that she was connected with the royal family. But no one really knew what she did. So I think peeling back the layers of this case, it's it's been a surprise and it's been very interesting getting to know her life through this lens. And I think that so many people are, are really surprised that a female had a, a very key role to play. And she does warrant further investigation, that's for sure, given given her behavior. Well, can you give me some specifics about what surprised you other than just her being female? Well, I think that she had this close relationship with Epstein that began on the 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 basis that she had the access to royalty and to high society to the elite and you can't just access those circles you know the in in the UK things operate very differently you do you do have the us and them and you can't just rock up to places where uh, the elite echelons are socializing you have to be there by invitation and i think when epstein met her given his uh, savant for understanding people and particularly rich people, he, I believe, engaged her using his charm and his magnetism. And she saw an opportunity with him, given his money and his wealth. And she, that was something that she aspired to have more of. And I've certainly seen that many times. The more money you have, the more that you want, even though she was well looked after in her father's will. I think that she presented an opportunity for him in terms of her access levels and he presented an opportunity for her. But I do believe from everything I've read and understood that she did fall for him and she saw him as being somebody who she could create a life with and she saw him as a romantic interest. And it depends on which reports you listen to, but listening to uh, Laura Gooden, one of the journalists who knew uh, the Maxwell family well, she said that Ghislaine did fall in love with him. And I do believe that he manipulated her and that she would do anything and everything to keep him happy. So you do have a power imbalance there. But she was active as a co-conspirator. She was one of the key people who was at the top of the pyramid of targeting young girls. And even with Virginia Roberts, she spotted her outside the club at Mar-a-Lago and she was the one who approached approached Virginia. 
saw she had a massage book in hand and offered her this opportunity to work as a travelling masseuse. And it was she, through Virginia's account, that was the one who um, targeted her, who groomed her and who schooled her and talked her through. Virginia said it was like training, like going to school, talked her through every sexual act in order to please Epstein. And she was the one who wrote the script and she was the one who proactively went out and procured young girls and women to please, in inverted commas, Epstein. Speaking about Ghislaine Maxwell, her whereabouts are not known. Uh, Jim, you're a former FBI agent. Could you walk us through step by step what you think the Bureau is doing or should be doing to find her? Sure. Well, one of the easiest things to do is to scour social media and the Internet. There are now facial recognition programs that can do what might have taken a hundred years before in literally seconds to scan anything that she might pop up in. Now, because she has wealth and the ability to travel, um, she could be staying in a place she owns or some friend of hers owns, and she may not ever be seen in public because she's in hiding. But the FBI should be talking to all of its legal attaches over the, around the world. Um, legal attaches are the offices that the FBI has in the embassies around the world, and they cooperate with foreign powers in order to investigate crimes that Americans are involved in those countries and also to liaise between those countries in the United States. So they would be taking advantage of that legal attache program around the, the globe to put out feelers and APBs for her. And they should be uh, talking to every family member, every known friend and associate of hers, and checking out places where she normally is found. I'm sure that the UK is in a position to help in that hunt. And uh, I have every reason to believe that they would be if they're interested in it. Um, and Laura has told me that they're investigating Prince Andrew as well um, for his connections to Epstein. And, and, and I believe that because they are involved in that inquiry, that they are most likely also helping with the Glenn Maxwell inquiry. It's been two and a half months since his death. Is that an ordinary time scale for nothing to have come up or moved on the law enforcement side? Yeah, I don't think you should expect it to be uh, a very quick process. In fact, because there are so many moving parts in this investigation, because it spans not only the United States of America, but the world, these interactions that we're going to have with our legal attache offices, with Interpol, with foreign governments, the fact that he has an offshore island that he owned, it took them quite a bit of time to go and search that place because there are jurisdictional issues, there are logistical issues. But I'm confident that the Southern District of New York and the squad that I used to work on in the New York office of the FBI, the Crimes Against Children squad, it's a joint task force between the FBI and the NYPD. I'm confident that they will not let this go that this is something that they will that they have gotten their teeth into and they will fully investigate it 
it's just going to take time. And there are many facets to the investigation as well. I believe the the Mexico ranch still hasn't been searched and there's a basement there that some of the staffers say really should be searched. You've then got the goings-on in Florida, and I really believe strongly that Sheriff Rick Bradshaw needs to be looked into thoroughly by the Department of Law Enforcement there. There are allegations that he is threatening uh, senators and others who are saying that he should be investigated, and I cannot understand how he can say that he has launched an investigation into his sheriff's office handling of the Epstein case when he was the one making the decisions. That sounds really concerning to me. And then there's the aspect of the tapes that are still outstanding that the detective Joe Riccari, the lead investigator in the Epstein case, he had the the police case file that he sent to John Mark Dugan because he was so concerned about what was happening, i.e. the lack of anybody wanting to take forward the investigation, bar his chief, Michael Reiter. And I do think those tapes that John Mark Douglas has, who's got political asylum in Russia, will be very instructive about who was going into the house and who was also involved in child sex trafficking. So there are many facets to to the case. I, I know certainly New Scotland Yard are investigating the Prince Andrew connection and the Channel 4 dispatches was very instructive around that. And it's not the fact that Virginia Roberts was underage in the UK because our underage, well, it's, it's 16 to consent and she was 17. It's much more about the child sex trafficking component that needs to be investigated. And of course, Ghislaine Maxwell was key in recruiting Virginia Roberts. So that's the the area for clarification that New Scotland Yard uh, are looking into currently. Let's discuss some of Epstein's victims and what the future holds for them. Some say that they felt his suicide denied them a chance at justice, no matter what might happen in future investigations. Many have filed civil suits against Epstein's conspirators. What role do you think these civil suits play in sexual assault cases? Well, Lindsay, I have to say that civil suits are are sometimes the only justice that victims can get because the statute of limitations in the criminal cases is very limited. Um, it It is unfortunate, but the facts are that in child sexual victimization cases, um, in the John Jay Catholic Church study, we learned that 50% of the victims waited 20 years to come forward, and that 25% waited 30 years to come forward. And so what we have is statute of limitations that at the time were five years and seven years, and now some they've been extended somewhat. But criminally, after that period of time, you can't do anything. You can't even arrest the person after the statute of limitations has expired. So just like in the O.J. Simpson case, the murder of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, their families were able to sue O.J. Simpson. And one, they had access to more evidence by that time. For example, pictures of him actually wearing the same shoes that he claimed he never wore that were actually footprinted in the blood of the victims at the crime scene. That wasn't available during the criminal trials, but it was available during the civil trials. And he lost that. They won those, the civil case against O.J. Simpson. And because of that, they are able to say that he is personally responsible for the deaths of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. So 
it does give families and victims an opportunity to at least bring somebody through the justice system and get vindicated and not be called an accuser anymore, but actually the victim of a crime, the survivor of a horrific series of crimes, and somebody who then somebody who can then move on with their lives. And many of the victims, well, we've still got people coming forward. And I think, you know, I've said it on, on Real Crime Profile that this case is still unfolding and it's still very much active. So we will hear from more victims and some just want their voices to be heard. They want to be believed and they want to be empowered and they want uh, some form of acknowledgement for the abuse that he conducted over many dec- decades. And so part of the process is about honouring them, and that's what we do on, on Real Crime Profile, put the victim's narrative at the centre of, of what we do. And then there's the other aspect. Eps- Epstein, see, sorry, Epstein's death did rob them of justice in terms of him, but what about the enablers and the defenders? They're also accountable, and they should be accountable, particularly people in public office, and that, for me, when people join law enforcement, majority of the time when I train law enforcement, you know, we all agree that we join because we want to protect people. We want to we wanted to protect and serve. And those people in law enforcement or public positions that actually have done the opposite have allowed a prolific child sex offender to get away with it for decades. They have to be held to account. And I would certainly like to see this non-prosecution agreement torn up and those people listed and named to be prosecuted. And I'm sure that having seen uh, and read a lot about what many of the victims want, they want to see that too. And unfortunately, Judge Mara ruled that 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 wouldn't happen. And I also think the victims deserve and should be kept up to date with what's happening in this case as well, given the fact that they were silenced for so long and actually told the opposite. They were told that the case was being investigated, where all the while an agreement was reached and they were kept out of the loop. So I I think we have to empower victims and bring their voices forward. And that's certainly something that I would like to see continuing to happen in this case. As a final question, given your combined experience, what sorts of questions do you think we are failing to ask about this case? What hasn't yet been adequately analyzed? I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll weigh in. I mean, for me, and I said very clearly on Real Crime Profile, that it's the ecosystem that needs to be looked at. It's not just about one person, this case. And that was really just to square the circle. That's what surprised me the most. I've always seen it go on in cases, uh, the patriarchy at work of women not being believed and girls not being believed when they come forward. But this case really does reveal it the systemic aspect to it in much more detail. And I think they're the questions that we have to ask about how it was allowed and the accountability really does need to happen. And that part, I think, is much more difficult. Um, and so the enable is being named. And I, and I do believe that the more people who come forward, the better. And I'm talking about the staffers. I'm talking about the drivers who drove him, the pilots in the jets, the staff that worked for Epstein in his multiple houses. There's safety in numbers in people coming forward. And I really think it's brave and courageous for those who have to do so. But I do think they should waive their anonymity and they should stand together 
because Epstein did create a power imbalance with them too, i.e. if they were on the payroll. But I do think there needs to be transparency in this case. And that is a very brave and courageous step to take. But I think it really needs to happen to expose the, the key people who are responsible in the, this ecosystem of allowing abuse on this scale to happen over so many decades. Jim, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, well, you said it very well, Laura. I think I, I, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. And I believe that in particular, when you have a position in law enforcement, when victims come to you, you don't have to absolutely believe everything a victim says, but you have an absolute duty and obligation to not disbelieve them because of who the victim is. You have to fully investigate right from the start. And there's so many times, especially in child sex crimes and sex trafficking investigations, where investigators judge the victim and then decide whether or not they're going to investigate or how seriously they're going to investigate. The fact is, every person enjoys the right to not be the victim of a child sex crime no matter who they are, no matter how screwed up their background is, no matter how wealthy they are or how poor they are, no matter whether they're involved in drugs or something else, no matter whether or not they made the decision themselves to be involved or they were abducted at gunpoint. The fact is our laws protect children, whoever they are. And we have to stop as law enforcement officers judging victims and their circumstances and letting that affect our investigation and our prosecution. Because many times prosecutors will say, ah, I don't think this victim is going to be believed and they decline prosecution. That is an absolute aberration of justice. And what we really need is for people to stand up for children, whoever they are, and make sure that this kind of behavior, whether it's a massive case like Jeffrey Epstein or one victim case that happens all the time, we have to protect our children. That's what we're in law enforcement for. And that's a cultural shift that's really needed in the post-Me Too era. I think that this really does expose the, the Me Too aspect and how prolific and prevalent uh, sex offending is. But Julie, I want to pay tribute to Julie Brown, who has shown tenacity in exposing Epstein, because I know certainly for, for Julie and people like Ronan Farrow, it comes at huge personal cost and they put their lives on the line in doing so. And that's why I say it's safety in numbers. It shouldn't just be about Julie or Ronan Farrow. Um, it should be about all of us standing together and saying that this is unacceptable so that it's not just one or two people who have marks on their back and have their life terrorised or threatened. And the senator in Florida who's going through that at the moment, who is being threatened because she's calling for the sheriff to be um, investigated thoroughly, we all need to come forward and be upstanders. And that is the cultural shift, not turning a blind eye when these things happen and finding our voices and, and speaking out. And that's why we agreed on Real Crime Profile that we would name all those that we came across, including Epstein's lawyers, who enabled him and created this ecosystem where abuse of this level and, an, and a prolific abuser was allowed to thrive. That can never happen again. Jim, Laura, I appreciate your passion, concern, and expertise in this case. And, and thank you for speaking with me today. 
Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you for doing this project. It's really making an impact. And we learned a lot and we learned more by diving in and looking at other aspects of it. And I hope that everyone in the world listens to this and learns from it. It has been great jumping off of the mysterious Mr. Epstein and unraveling who he really was and what was going on behind the curtain. That was my conversation with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards from the podcast Real Crime Profile. Their companion series to our show is called Forensically Deconstructing Jeffrey Epstein. You can find it by following the link in our episode notes. You can also learn about other abuses of power and trust in my podcast, American Scandal. In the coming weeks, we're looking at one of the most corrupt seats of power in America, Albany, New York. From Elliot Spitzer's inglorious downfall to the three men in a room who rule the New York State Legislature, our series, New York State of Crime, proves once again that power corrupts, but can also have a cost. Search for American Scandal in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. This is a story about power, abuse, and manipulation. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and every other major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, just tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. By supporting them, you help us offer this show to you for free. This series deals with issues of sexual violence. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rain.org. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound designed by Derek Barons. This episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger. Executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman, George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, everyone. It's Dylan Byers from NBC News. This week on my podcast, Buyer's Market, I sit down one-on-one with media mogul Barry Diller. We talk about how the media and entertainment industries have changed throughout his nearly 60-year career. Look, Google is a monopoly. They are doing what is natural to monopolies. And they won't stop doing it until they get regulated, which they will. It's only, to me, a question of time. Diller shares his candid thoughts on Netflix, Disney+, Apple TV+, and Quibi. He also weighs in on the Oscars, the state of Facebook, and the Democratic presidential race. Search for Buyer's Market wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.